0: Hi, everyone. My name is Joyce Martyr, and I've been a licensed psychotherapist for 25 years. I'm the founder of Urban Balance. I'm a national speaker and the author of The Financial Mindset Fix, a mental fitness program for an abundant life. And thank you for listening to the Neuro Noodle Network podcast.
1: Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology podcast featuring our neuropsychologist Dr. Laura Janssen, Dr. Skip Rin and neurofeedback legend Jay Gunkelman. Our goal is promote options for better mental health. Specifically, we focus on the objective data you can get from a brain map and the positive results of training with neurofeedback. Occasionally we'll bring on guests who have a different modality. Got to have an open mind, right? This is an all-star cast, that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You get to see some behind-the-scenes action. It doesn't always sound as good as it does on the podcast. It really helps get the word out. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. If you're not a subscriber, please visit NeuroNoodle.com to sign up for our newsletter. My name is Pete, and today we have on the show Joyce Martyr, founder of Urban Balance and author of The Financial Mindset Fix, a mental fitness program for an abundant life. Say that three times fast, Joyce. It's tough. (laughs) Joyce, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Pete. Please tell us about your background. I mean, I can't do it justice. You started out as being a therapist and worked your way up to all the locations and whatnot. Please start from the beginning. Thank
0: you so much. I am a Buckeye. I'm from Ohio State, the and Ohio when State. I was the Ohio State University. And when I started college, like many, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I didn't know what I wanted to major in. And they encouraged us to study what we love. And I found psychology to be so fascinating. And I care about the deeper aspects of our lives, our emotions, our relationships, our connectedness to one another. And I quickly learned that if I didn't want to be a waitress forever, I would need to get a master's degree. And so I came to Northwestern. That's what brought brought me to the Chicago area, and it was there that I found a language and a lens through which to understand myself, my life, and the world around me. And I felt like I found my people. When I started graduate school, I was really afraid that my professors were going to see that I deal with an anxiety disorder, and that they'd say, "Joyce, you can't be a therapist. You have issues." Well, guess what? We all have issues as part of the human condition. And thankfully, the professors recommended we all participate in our personal therapy or counseling. And that was transformative for me. And I've become a fierce mental health advocate. I worked in addictions. I worked in employee assistance program work with companies across the country. And I really saw the need for destigmatizing mental health issues promoting access to care, and making it accessible and affordable. So I started Urban Balance in the Chicago area, which is an insurance-friendly counseling practice, and grew it one therapist at a time. And I actually successfully sold it a few years ago. And today, Urban Balance has 17 locations in six states, over 160 therapists, and I'm honored to be an investor in the parent company. I made a thousand mistakes during my journey that I'm happy to share with you about being a business owner. And I learned a tremendous amount about the psychology of money, which is lo- what I share in my book and through my public
1: speaking. And you're a neighbor too. You're, you're in Chicago still?
0: I am. I'm in Evanston. Evanstone. I loved it. Yeah.
1: We're, we're in Buffalo Grove, right, Dr. Laura? Lovely COVID threw us a nice curveball, huh?
0: Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Definitely. And I've been so thankful for telehealth, being able to provide counseling virtually. And then all of my speaking engagements turned virtual. And my business actually grew in the last year and a half because of all the mental health issues that people are experiencing. We were already in a mental health epidemic and the pandemic added fuel to the fire. And it's my hope that that's the silver lining because companies across the globe have hired me to do mental health awareness trainings. We need to spread that message. So I've been very busy and and grateful that companies are supporting their employees' mental health and well-being.
1: So so what is Urban Balance? Obviously, I've seen the website and whatnot, but how would you describe it? What's the elevator pitch? It is
0: an insurance-friendly counseling practice. So we're in network with all insurance companies aiming to make therapy accessible and affordable. So instead of paying 150 out of pocket, many clients pay a $15, $25 copay. We work with most employee assistance programs, which many people don't realize that if they have private insurance, 80% of employees have an EAP benefit that offers some free counseling services per issue per year. And My philosophy for hiring therapists was to hire people who are nice and normal and relatable because the research shows that if you like your therapist, you make the most progress in therapy. So all of our clinicians have different areas of expertise and different theoretical orientations, but they are all kind and compassionate, client-centered, focused on strengths building, not shaming, very supportive. And we've got locations, you know, throughout the country. And so I'm really proud of the organization. We celebrate the diversity of our staff and our clients and really focus on collaboration.
1: Now, Dr. Laura and Dr.
2: Skip are smiling there. Uh, where, where, <laughs> feel feel free to jump in. I couldn't help. Uh, the smile is about... I guess you're not hiring psychologists and that's not that we're not nice. It's just, you know, you go to a psych convention and it's a room full of weirdos and, and that's, that's okay. You know what I mean? Everybody's got their niche, but that was what the smile was. Only that. And, and I feel like I can make fun of the group. I'm a part of, you know, But I'm fascinated uh, with this notion of being an advocate for mental health and how that ties into your book it just if if that's a starting point and everybody's all right with this jumping in there, uh, I, I do think our relationship with money and, and and abundance and of course you know wealth however we define it uh, is integral to health and and mental health and how we feel. So can can you maybe tell us a little about your book and how that factors into mental health?
0: Absolutely. Well, first, I want to answer your question about being a mental health advocate. So I've served board leadership positions on a state and national level. I've lobbied with our state senators and representatives to support bills that promote access to care for the poor, the elderly, for students and veterans. And I do mental health advocacy through my public speaking, through blogging. It's something that's very important to me. My book was based on basically what I noticed in my practice. As I started working with my clients, no matter what their presenting issue, whether it was depression, anxiety, addiction, they started to, as they made progress in therapy, they started to make more money. They started getting raises and promotions and starting their own businesses. And I was like, Why is this happening? And how can I do this? (laughs) And they said, you know, basically, we realized it was because we're always working on their underlying self worth and self esteem. And as that improved and they started aligning their work with their deeper self and their greater gifts, they started to prosper financially. And Susie Orman, the financial author, said she noticed the same thing that self worth leads to net worth. But net worth does not lead to self-worth. In order to be happy, we have to do our internal work. And I became fascinated in the psychology of money after seeing, literally, I've seen thousands of clients over the past 25 years and from all walks of life and noticed that our psychology of money shapes our financial reality. So our belief systems, and many of us learn those from our families of origin Many of us have been through financial traumas, maybe our parents or grandparents have and have passed down beliefs about money because they lived through the Great Depression or other financial traumas as as a result of racism, stigmatization and marginalization of, of certain populations. And so our thoughts and our behaviors And our relationships with money, it's really our psychology that impacts our ability to follow the very basic money guidelines that we all know that you have to earn more than you spend, you have to save, that's not rocket science, but it's our human nature that makes it challenging. And so that's what my book is about. I learned through my entrepreneurial journey. As I mentioned, I made a thousand mistakes. I had to do some deep work on myself and my own self esteem and my own relationship with money. I started my business with $500, 50,000 of student loan debts, and I sold it when it was grossing over $5 million a year for a multi million dollar offer. I never would have thought that that was possible. And I want to share with others that it it truly is. And it's not about greed or materialism or the love of money. What I've learned is that when you have more, you can be of greater service in the world through charity, through philanthropy, by offering jobs and internships. As our practice strengthened, we were able to offer pro bono counseling and sliding fee counseling and give donations to charities that our staff believed in. So my book is based on 12 mindsets that I identified through my clinical practice that lead to both improved mental health and financial health. And I had a PhD researcher help me with it, and they are proven (laughs) to lead to increased financial health and mental health. And I have exercises to help people build these skills because you have to do the work. It's a practice.
3: You're, you're making me think of, uh, I did do psychotherapy. You know, I'm a neuropsychologist now, but for my first 20 years uh, of psychology, I did psychotherapy in different venues. So in community agency, so kind of, um, you know, went that route at first and then went to private practice. And I remember kind of regardless that it was always difficult for me as a therapist at the end of the session to hold my hand out and say, can I have that check? You know, even yeah. if it's a $30 co-pay or something like that. So, so what, what do you tell people exactly? I mean, what do you tell your clients or your co-therapists as far as, you know, how, how to feel? In these days with neuropsychology, you know, the bills are bigger. And so now we're asking for thousands of dollars. And, you know, as you develop and mature, you know, it becomes somewhat easier for the reasons that you're talking about, that there's value in what I'm doing and what I'm sharing. And, and some of the things can be priceless. So, you know, that's kind of how I, I start to think about that. But what do you say exactly? How do you um, kind of give your message?
0: Absolutely. And we as clinicians are helping professionals. And as caretakers, we're mission-oriented and typically not great about money. We want to be of service, and it feels awkward and uncomfortable, and you know, we have, are compassionate about people's financial struggle. But I really believe that we do very important work. We have professional degrees. Many of us have taken out enormous student loans and we deserve financial prosperity and stability and financial health and wellness. So in my professional community, I've worked on task forces where we collaborated with other groups of mental health professionals and were able to get a 17% pay increase from Blue Cross Blue Shield for all mental health providers in Illinois. So I believe that when we value ourselves and we set higher standards, that that's healthy modeling for our clients. And so we need to ask for what we deserve. When I went through great financial struggle in my business, I had tremendous financial anxiety. I thought I would have to file bankruptcy. And I met with a CPA and he said, Joyce, you are not running a charity to employ therapists and you deserve to make a profit. And I realized that my own sort of codependency sort of detrimental caretaking, making sure that the needs of my staff and clients were met before my own was causing me financial harm. And so I had to learn how to care about myself and that's not selfish. It's like the oxygen mask analogy. When we take care of ourselves first, then we're more able to take care of others. And then I actually was able to you know pay people more to offer the sliding fee services. And so I work with people all the time on negotiation and valuing themselves and setting price limits and fees because it directly relates to our feelings of worth.
2: My training was, uh, you know, ab- about learning how to do therapy way back in the day, and lots of different aspects and 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 pieces of that basically constituted the training. There wasn't a, and I mean a, a singular. There wasn't one course on running the business of a private practice, or even probably more the elephant in the room, which I think you're addressing. And that said, hey, we're all these altruistic folks that want to help people. And it's weird to ask them for money to do it, like Laura just mentioned. And I can't help but thinking of just, you know, kind of religious influences and even just societal norms and ideas about, hey, if you're rich or that, if you're poor, you're this, All, all, all the big issues that you're, you're mentioning in your trainings, are you able to talk to institutions that are training clinicians? Hey, are are, are you able to get in there and say, Hey, like we got to have this conversation about money because it's real for all the reasons that, you know, you've already touched on, but are are you able to do that?
0: Yes, absolutely. So for about 10 years, I've been giving workshops and trainings on private practice and the business of running a practice and I use a lot of what I learned from psychology and from my own experiences as an entrepreneur. And I write about this topic. I'm a blogger for psych, or psychology today. I used to blog for Psych Central and I have a column called Mental Wealth where I share some of, some of these ideas But yes, I I recently gave training for PESI, which is one of the largest continuing education providers in the country on the business side of psychotherapy. And I think they had 2,300 uh, registrants for that. So I think it's a, a real need. I wish that more training programs provided more resources There are many great books and podcasts. There's an organization called the Group Practice Exchange that provides a lot of this type of information that I would recommend to people. Um, My friend and colleague, Norm Dassenbrook, does a lot of work in this area and has a great book. But yes, I think it's important for professionals who are in private practice to learn this and to get ahead of it because I learned from having a great mentor And he challenged me. Like I remember saying to him, Mark, I'm not going to take insurance because it's just too complicated and I can't understand it. It's time consuming. And he said, yeah, you are. (laughs) And he just practiced tough love and held my feet to the fire and supported me through it. And that ended up being a cornerstone to my business because more people were able to participate in therapy and they stayed longer because they could afford to do so and they made progress and then referred others. So yes, I do think that this is an important thing that should be taught in programs to set people up for success.
1: Hey, guys, mm-hmm. the Olympics are going on, and I don't know if anybody caught any of the headlines. We had a show. Let's see. Jo- Joyce, you're local. So we had Justin, we were talking about jo- Justin Fields and epilepsy. And then Naomi Oksana, the tennis player, uh, she oh. had some uh, issues. And now recently on the gymnastic team, uh, Simone, Simone Biles, Biles, yeah, she, uh, you know, had issues. Uh, finally, uh, you think people are going to start taking this seriously or... Not seriously, but having the stigma go away. uh, Because part of what we do is brain scans. We want to help out the athletes there. But, you know, the parents of athletes, uh, you know, when the kids are little and their brains are forming and their heads are getting knocked around, hopefully uh, putting them a little bit more attention out. Now, do you guys have any thoughts on Simone and what's been going on? You
4: know, she's overcome her circumstances and has excelled in life. And she's, still the greatest of all time in her sports, regardless of her withdrawal from the current Olympics. And you have to think back to what she's overcome. Uh, Larry Nassar was free to molest uh, young athletes for many, many years. And she was a foster kid and must have been an easy target for him Uh, And I hope he continues to rot in jail for his behavior. But, uh, you know, uh, she basically uh, has asked for our support uh, for her to take care of herself. And, you know, goodness, uh, I'm always going to support people who are looking to uh, 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 for their own mental health. If you roll the clock back, remember Carrie Strug, who had an obvious injury to her leg. And her coach, uh, Bella, forced her basically to complete. Now, she did get her gold medal, but she retired at age 18 due to that injury. And earlier in 1978, uh, Elena uh, Makina, a, a Soviet gymnast, uh, had a broken leg. And they they basically, uh, you know, moving towards the Olympics, um, realized that she'd have to do practice. And they forced her to take the cast off early, and on her weakened leg, she missed a very complex move and became quadriplegic, and which is entirely possible. If you miss a move and land on your chin, you're going to end up potentially breaking your neck. Now, uh, Simone completed just such a move earlier in the competition. They politically decided to lower her score so that other people didn't try her impossible, death-defying move. So, you know, I... Uh, I support her because if you're not at your best, you know, feeling the joy of your sport, you can hurt yourself. You can end up being quadriplegic or uh, injured in a permanent way. I've got nothing but respect for her and for her taking care of herself. Uh, we all need to do self care. Uh, the Olympics also has you know bizarre officials making decisions about uh, their wardrobe. Um, I hear that Olympic officials are going to have to wear a mandatory thong from now on, so uh, we'll we'll see uh, how that goes. I have nothing but uh, respect for uh, for for Simone, and uh, she is the greatest of all times, regardless of her dropping out. And uh, you know, we had a a young uh, athlete who rose to the gold at this point, so yeah, she she saw she wasn't going to be there at her best. And she stepped aside. <laughs> I'm old and in the way I've, I've learned to step aside as well. So as I say, nothing but respect for her.
3: And, and Pete used the word stigma, right? So, you know, there, there's certainly a stigma for mental health, uh, behavioral health, mental illness, you know, they change the vocabulary as time goes on, but it's still the same issue. I have a niece who's a, a volleyball player played in college and she's out of college now and still plays. And she had made the comment, you know, we, we rush to the side of people who are physically uh, injured. You know, you get an injury in sports and the, the team comes out with their bags and, and kneels by them. And are you okay? And, and you get them on the stretcher and carry them out. But, you know, do people run to the side But if there's a mental injury? And that, that was a great uh, analogy for her to say, you know, as a young person, kind of, you know, knowing, you know, what it feels like to, to have both of those things. And to everybody's point here, maybe you can't see, you know, the, the mental illness, so to speak, or, or can't you? Like, you know, aren't there things to expect, you know, when you're an athlete at that level and what the pressures could be and, you know, the isolation and, you know, the performance anxieties. I mean, we, we talk to a lot of people not at that level, but, you know, who are musicians or who are, you know, other athletes at different levels. And, and the pressure's intense, you know, and, and how, how do you not see that? Like, how do you not put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's at that level? We'll sit in the stands and root them on and, and all of that kind of stuff, but you know, the elephant in the room, I mean, you said that, Joyce, that, you know, it's the obvious stuff here, but we, we turn our backs to that, so yeah, it's a cultural phenomenon, and, you know, I, I think we're, we're trying to make headway, us at NeuroNoodle, trying to get the word out. I mean, that's what the podcast is about, and Joyce is, is getting the word out, and you know, kind of nicking away at it little by little, but, you know, you know, obviously it's a, it's a problem at, at different levels.
0: Absolutely. Well said, Dr. Laura and Jay, I think those are fantastic points and I just celebrate the bravery and the courage and the openness and authenticity of both Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka, because they serve as mental health champions and a light and an example for others that these are women that so many people admire and look up to and they're sharing their their story really destigmatizes mental health issues and it points out some really important issues that need to be addressed in our culture and dr laura you mentioned other celebrities actresses actors you know, musicians, I think of Amy Weinberg. I don't know if any of you ever watched her documentary, but she was so struggling with behavioral health issues and the people around her enabled her and she died. And so this, this is about the pressure that we put on people, the perfectionism that we expect that we, maybe the coaches, expect of them and put on them. I believe that we all need mental health as part of our wellness. My my book is called a mental fitness program because I think we we don't only need to exercise our physical bodies, but we need to exercise our minds and spirits and and so that we can be whole and well and athletes should have access to sports psychologists and counselors and we need to teach these skills in school we need to focus on early intervention and prevention and we need to address issues in the workplace where people experience psychological safety which you know where they can say you know this is what I'm experiencing and this is what I need you know mental health issues are covered with under the American with Disabilities Act And people should be able to take care of their mental health without feeling that there's going to be punishment in the workplace. And so I think there's loads of room for improvement for even organizations like the Olympics or pro tennis and other arenas to improve how they respond and take care of the mental health of their athletes. We need to practice compassion.
2: The last piece you ended with of of compassion. and, And so here's you know a a world-class athlete that's that's doing a different kind of performance right showing us something different and i think our reaction to it and 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 here we are talking about it you know from our professional and, and and human perspectives which is i think the direction to go right and and with naomi osaka it was different and i'm thinking back to a couple other guys that played basketball and ron artest and and dennis rodman in particular um who who helped kind of shape how the nba responded to mental health issues and it's, it's not that, hey, wow, we're acknowledging that these issues are present. Let's do something. It's that it, people are struggling with issues all the time because they're people. They happen to be world-class athletes. And, and as Jay's talked about in other guests we've had on the show, maybe they do work a little differently, but nonetheless, they experience these issues. And so then the response, I think, is what might be, I'm, I'm hoping, is changing. And we have conversations like this among professionals And our guest is out there actually doing things and talking to people to hopefully change the discourse. What would it take? What does it take for these athletes to, and and these two women that are are most recent in in certainly our discussions to like, go, Hey, like I'm not feeling so hot. I'm I'm obviously underrepresenting that, but to do that on the world stage so that we can have these conversations like, man, like not to be corny, but gold medal for that. You know what I mean? it, it, it It has to allow for other folks to at least be able to see that, and then say, "Wow, so there is a different choice." I, I can talk about these things that are that are uh, upsetting for me uh, and 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 express it and show it. That's where I'm, I kind of am, and not to take away from anybody's personal experience. You know, Simone, right, right here, but. I, mean, I, can't, I can't help thinking about the ripple for the directions that we're all hoping for this to happen. Like mental health stuff's real.
1: We're talking about world-class athletes. What about grade school gymnasts, right? High school You know, the pressures that are are going on there, you know, what what can the parents do to prepare them, whether it's talk therapy or neurofeedback? Anybody have any advice for the parents to build a foundation of good mental health to handle all this pressure? Because, I mean, social media wasn't around 25 years ago. Uh, Now everybody has a camera, everybody has a comment, you know, the internet isn't kind.
0: I'd love to dive in on that. I think having honest conversations about mental health at home is a great place for parents to start and to talk about their own mental health and their own challenges and struggles and normalize that. You know, my my girls know that I've been in therapy on and off throughout my lifetime. They're 16 and 19. I have them in therapy at different points in my life when when their dad and I divorced especially and they've stayed on beyond that. I encourage them to see their school counselors at school and my older daughters at college and she takes advantage of that. It's free, it's available. Parents can communicate with the school counselors. I believe in teaching them self-care. So there are great apps like Headspace and Calm. And Calm has an app aspect for the children. And so teaching kids how to take care of themselves so that they don't burn out, I think is so important.
3: I have done a lot of individual psychotherapy, but I've I've also been trained in family systems, uh, family therapy, and what, what was interesting for me as a psychotherapist when I was working with children early on in the career that the parents would you know kind of drop the kids off and then go you know sit in the parking lot or go sit and read you know People magazine while the kid was in there getting counseling you know the family systems approach made, made so so much sense to me where let's get everybody in there like you know one kid isn't you know an island and we're just going to you know focus on that person how did they get there what are the dynamics you know what are the roles in the family. What are the rules, spoken, unspoken, those kinds of things. And um, I never thought I'd be saying this here, uh, but I want to quote Dr. Drew, Dr. Drew Pinsky. Uh, I never thought I would say that. Somehow uh, in the career, I've I've picked up his book, and I don't, whatever, can't can't remember the circumstance, but he had, in my opinion, a good book called the, I had to look it up, The Mirror Effect. And he talked about narcissism in celebrities and how, you know, the celebrities you know, can be narcissistic and and I'm not talking necessarily about athletes as much as kind of what do we do as the audience members? How do we project our, well, I'll say low self-esteem or a low image. And we're looking for a, a hero, so to speak. And so we play a role as an audience member or as a family member in wanting the other person to be lifted up so that we can somehow vicariously of benefit from their success, but then you know we're in these positions to put them up, raise them up, put them down. And somehow, you know, there's these kind of very complex dynamics or complex attachments, but there's a dynamic. And you know, they they don't suffer, you know, they're they're not the problem by themselves. And what role do we play in you know supporting them, you know, you know, or or the other way, what role do we play in kind of getting them to to a low place? So I think a systems approach um, should, you know, it's going to be important and, you know, family counseling early on so that, you know, mothers aren't, or fathers, you know, I can stereotype, but aren't projecting their, you know, high school dreams onto their kid and making them play violin when they want to play drums or, you know, however that would go. So I, I think that that's also important.
0: Well said, couldn't agree more. Yeah. We all have to do our own work. And when we do our own work, it helps our kids and the family systems approach, I think is, is so important. I love what you said and such an interesting point about the narcissism of athletes and, or celebrities and, and how we as the public contribute to that. And I think sometimes people idealize celebrities or star athletes and, And then in turn, you know, they serve a dual function of being heroes and we put a lot of pressure on them. And we also may feel inadequate in comparison to them when in reality, we're, we all have our strengths and we all have our challenges. So these celebrities are not perfect and we are not inadequate. (laughs) We are all deserving of greatness and we all have our unique gifts to offer to the world.
3: Again, I don't want to go too far off the field, and I actually want to bring it back to neuroscience for a second. I've been doing this probably, Joyce, as, as long as maybe you have, and I can firmly say that everybody, you know, de- depending on how you define this, everybody has low self-esteem. We have low, low self-esteem moments, and there is, you know, if we start talking about brain networks, we can rope it back to neuroscience that we have uh, a default mode network. So there's a network in our brain to try to keep it simple here, but a network in our brain that um, is self-referential, that we, when we're doing supposedly nothing, our brain wanders to ourself. And it's self-corrective, but it's also self-critical. Uh, so we're, we're thinking about, you know, what we're doing wrong, what we need to change. I need to get a haircut. I need to get that report done. I need to take the laundry, whatever. So it's all self-referential. And the, the problems can be when we don't move ourselves away from the default mode, when we don't start uh, engaging in a task or doing something that you know pulls us away from that, some health conditions can affect the way we uh, switch gears or switch channels. So it's not, I've always told people, it's not, the, the fact that you have a negative uh, judgment of yourself, it's that you dwell on it or don't change the channel or don't challenge it or don't do something about it. Like we, we should be thinking, you know, at some level, hey, I, I dropped something on my shirt. I need to change my shirt. That, that's a normal thought. Because if you never have a critical thought, well, you're going to be walking around with slap on your shirt. But that's the point is having one moment of the thought is good, ruminating over and over again, you know, multiple thoughts of I'm, I'm no good, you know, add up at the end of the day or the end of the month or the end of the year to depression or, you know, an anxiety condition. So having self-esteem, low self-esteem isn't the problem as much as what do you do to kind of move out of it?
0: Absolutely. And there's a chapter in my book on ego, and we all have egos as part of the human condition. And I discuss how I believe that healthy self-esteem is midway between diva and doormat and dudes can be divas too but diva and doormat are the two sides of ego and they both represent low self-worth and in the middle is healthy self-esteem so the diva is not respectful of other people's boundaries and is entitled and doesn't self-examine every every problem is somebody else's fault and then the doormat doesn't respect his or her own boundaries you know doesn't advocate for themselves And so, and thinks everything's their fault. And so healthy self-esteem is when we kind of dial that in and we show respect for ourselves and others. And we communicate assertively. We set healthy boundaries. We negotiate. It's, it's something we all have to work on. And so in my book, I talk about how to silence your inner critic, your inner saboteur using skills from cognitive behavioral therapy, and then how to cultivate your own Self-compassionate voice. How to be your own good parent, your own best friend, and your both your own positive coach. You
1: know, we're ta- we're talking about gymnastics. Why does put putting caps uh, come to mind? Do the kids take a tumble? Should they have you know protection out there? I mean, gymnasts, cheer, cheerleaders. You think that plays a, a role? Later in life, parents listen to this show, technicians li- listen to this show, clinicians listen to this show, you know, parents of the athletes and your kids, you know, taking a tumble out there, you know, they, they should be paying attention to that because later in life, I, I don't know how many hits Simone has, has taken, but could that be an issue? Uh, Jay, Dr. Laura, Skip?
4: Uh, Obviously, uh, for gymnastics, there are spotting, there's spotting equipment uh, that protects uh, uh, younger athletes. Uh, There's uh, appropriate coaching. Um, You don't want to end up with a coach who uh, ends up uh, pushing past what your capacity is. uh, And at the same time, you have to expand your skill set. You have to reach beyond what your current capabilities are to end up becoming uh, world class. We did a large project with the Australian Institute for Sports, and we looked at world-class athletes' brain activity. We actually identified that they're not normal. In fact, you wouldn't expect them to be normal. I mean, if they were normal, how would they be extraordinary? You know, So they, they do have outlier uh, features that lend them towards anxiety and lend them towards uh, difficulties with sleep and lend them towards uh, um, obsessive uh, traits as well. And you need to be a little bit obsessive. Um, you, uh, you have to have a high drive mechanism, uh, but those same underlying features that uh, have to be there can also be uh, pathological and they have to be controlled. The, the inability to sleep well makes you and absolutely, you're not going to be a world-class athlete if you can't sleep. Uh, the slow wave sleep gives you growth hormone. It lets you recover from the wear and tear of the intense workouts. I remember being a competitive swimmer, two workouts a day plus weights. And after two years at the university, I realized, geez, I'm here for school, not, not swimming. You know, so I dropped out of that after two years of university level competitive swimming. But you know, it, it's it's brutal, and uh, but it has to be. I mean, you're you're not going to develop yourself to a world class level unless you're actually pushing yourself. Um, uh, but you need to end up having the ability to counterbalance all that. The the inability to sleep can be, uh, you know, worked with. Uh, neurofeedback and neuromodulation techniques can end up driving down the beta spindle that we see at the vertex, uh, which is a, a wakefulness drive, uh, so that sleep can be achieved. And if you're in Australia and you're going to compete internationally, believe me, you're going to have to be able to sleep well because you're going to be in somebody else's time zone when you're competing. You know, having your circadian rhythm upside down uh, doesn't necessarily help your competitive edge. So learning world-class self-regulation is also absolutely required if you're going to actually reach the very peak of, of, uh, of anything. I'm hopeful that uh, the inner tremulousness that, um, that Simone experienced for 24 hours before her mistake in competition, where she lost where she was in three dimensional space in the middle of a twist. And, you know, you can just as easily land on your chin or break your leg. And, you know, I, I gave examples of just such mistakes Or earlier, so uh, it's a brutal world out there. You've got to do self care, or to make it to the very top. And if you're not willing to step away, you're not doing you know full self care. You have to be ready to step away. You know, head injury ends up being a real common circumstance, but uh, so are other um, uh, major problems with the brain. Not not a functional disturbance like uh, ADD, ADHD, or depression or anxiety but actually a a structural uh, anomaly to the brain, which can include strokes. Now we had a question from a listener about strokes and uh, she had multiple strokes. She had an arteriovenous malformation, which ruptured, which they tend to do, uh, bled into the brain, uh, ended up with multiple strokes. And she was inquiring about uh, neurofeedback and looking at her uh, note, I noticed that the clinic she was intending to go through did not list stroke as something that they worked with. I think that's something you need to look for. I mean, is the person you're thinking of having neurofeedback with or other neuromodulatory work with actually familiar with the disturbance that you have? Uh, is this somebody who only works with ADD and you're coming in with a head injury or stroke or a tumor or something? I mean, uh, you, you've got to match up with the skill set of the therapist. To think of uh, 30 sessions as a successful uh, set when you have a major problem like strokes or seizures or something like that, it, it takes longer when you've got major medical problems in the brain to uh, come around to a fix. At the same time, we can't give specific advice on the show But we do end up running into people that have major problems in the brain, which require people with extraordinary levels of skill, not just a routine level of work with ADD or, again, more of a dysfunction as opposed to uh, pathological uh, disturbance. And uh, since you brought up uh, head trauma as a common circumstance, of course it is, but so are other more uh, serious things, epilepsy, strokes, et cetera.
1: Parents, have your kids get a get a doodle of their noodle once a season. Once a season, hey, if you're gonna get a physical checkup, get your brain checked out. That's just a layman talking.
0: Do you all work with people who have had concussions? I have so many people in my practice who have children who are athletes who've had multiple concussions, are dealing with depression and dealing with great uncertainty about if they should continue their sport and how their brain is recovering or not?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, that's a, a large part of what, what we're doing. Rather than do the traditional uh, pre-test for, for sports, we prefer to do our neuroimaging so we can get an objective baseline of where people are before they, they you know uh, enter their season and then kind of do post-test if they happen to get injured. There, there's a Pete, Pete brought up this concept of pudding cap. I don't know if you caught that because we, we talked about that in an earlier show, but a pudding cap and I'm going to uh, get the wrong century, but 17, oh, probably 1800s. Um, they, they developed a cap and it's actually a funny picture. If you Google it of, of this little kind of looks like a headband and it can't, you know, be any kind of protection at all, but they, they had a belief back uh, in the 1800s that, Children who um, you know bounced around and hit their head, you know, for different reasons, because that's what kids do. But the theory was that that bouncing as a young person translated later in life to ADHD. So I thought that was a kind of a compelling thing. But we're talking about sports where there's actual, you know, uh, serious injuries and things like that. So the answer to your question is yes. We prefer to you know use that kind of information to inform parents of, of you know again baselines and and after injury kinds of things. And, you know, to be clear that neurofeedback is a great intervention um, to help people with brain injury, you know, whether, you know, it's been a, a recent injury or one that's occurred, you know, uh, over a period of time, because we could still help those kind of folks as well.
1: Joyce, thank you again for coming on the show. Could you give us your websites, please? You have, you have so many, I'll let you pick. Uh... <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you. So my book can be found at financialmindsetfix.com and it's being sold on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Indie Books, all the major real retailers. And then my own website is joysmarter.com, which is j o y c e m a r t e r.com and I'm on on all the social media handles and I definitely need some Instagram love. It is hard to move forward I, on that, man. I am
1: I I'm with it. you on that. It's <laughs> Doing Humble. it on a PC, forget about it. Come on, Zuckerberg. <laughs> totally. Joyce, thank you. Th- thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: My pleasure. You all are doing important work in the world and such smart, good people. I'm honored to be among you. And I'll spread the word about your podcast and the work that you're doing
1: in the world. Oh, we'll definitely share links. Hey, we thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology podcasts. The contact info for everyone, including Joyce, will be in the podcast notes below. Do you have an idea for a topic? Please email me, Pete, at NeuroNoodle.com, or leave a voicemail with the link in the podcast notes. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to our YouTube channel, smash that like button, good luck on Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. And hey, if you really, really, really like us, you can always buy us a coffee on Patreon slash NeuroNoodle. Cue the band.